let's pray together. Father in heaven, uh, we give you thanks and praise once again for uh, the work that you have been doing in our lives as individuals, in our church, in our nation. We thank you, Lord, that you are ever on your throne, uh, never passive, never asleep, but always at work, and for your people at work for our good, Lord God. We thank you, especially that we can open next week at 50% again. We are so thankful and so excited about that. And again, we recognize that that has come from your hand. And so you are worthy of praise. Lord, as we open your word now again to the book of Jonah, we ask your blessing, your presence, your power uh, would attend. And Father, continue in your work of transforming us, changing each and every one of us to look more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen. I was reflecting uh, this past week a little on <clears throat> how much impatience there has been in Canada as of late. So many of us are impatient with our political leaders, um, impatient with the pandemic, impatient with one another in some cases, impatient just with a whole lot of things. And this impatience about us has unfortunately been a breeding ground for grumbling, uh, for unmerciful words, for uh, unmerciful actions in some cases, for, for anger and all the rest of it. It's been a hard and trying time. Impatience. And so I spent some time this week meditating also on God's patience and mercy. So I went purposely to places in the Bible where God's patience, where God's mercy, God's forbearance are described. And I was amazed all over again at the difference between God's heart and my heart, my own heart, when it comes to these things. So allow me, if you will, just to immerse us in a few of those verses that I was meditating on this week as we begin this morning. And I invite you to listen carefully and to really just behold, to, to take in the patience and the mercy and the forbearance of your God. May this be a humbling and a transformative exercise. So in Romans 2 verse 4, Paul speaks of the riches, listen, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. The riches, the wealth of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience. There, there is an eternal, inexhaustible fountain of divine kindness, of divine forbearance, divine patience. Ori, if you could switch that next slide for us, thank you. In 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul uses the phrase, perfect patience in relation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has perfect, imagine it, perfect patience. There are no flaws, there are no lacks in the patience of Jesus Christ. It is perfect patience. 
If we could go one slide further. In 2 Peter 3, verse 9, Peter assures us that the Lord is what? Patient toward you. The Lord is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I don't know about you, but I am so genuinely thankful for the Lord's patience. Can go one more slide, please? Thank you. We know from the great description of God in Exodus chapter 34 that he is, as the scripture says, he is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The words of that Exodus 34 description get repeated again many, many times throughout the Old Testament, throughout the books of the Old Testament. They get repeated, for example, in the Pentateuch, and also in the Psalms, and in Nehemiah, and also in the latter prophets. Is that working again? It's not working. Okay. Maybe we'll just have to switch from the back this morning. Thank you. So Exodus 34, repeated again and again throughout the Scriptures, constant reminders that are scattered, sprinkled throughout the Scriptures of the forbearance, the mercy, the patience and kindness of our God. In Ephesians 2, Paul declares that God is rich in mercy. And in Hebrews 2.17, Jesus is described as a merciful and faithful high priest. I also love Psalm 78, verses 38 and 39, where God is described as being compassionate uh, and restraining his anger often. Compassionate and restraining his anger often. Well, friends, it becomes very clear, very clear in reading the scriptures that God is on a whole other level of patience, mercy, and forbearance. Oh, to be like thee, full of compassion, loving, forgiving, tender, and kind, helping the helpless, cheering the fainting, seeking the wandering sinner to find. Well, the patience, mercy, and forbearance of our God shows up very vividly in the verse that we have under consideration this morning, uh, just a single verse today, and it, it's Jonah 3, verse 10. If you remember from last Sunday, if we can just go back one slide. If you remember from last Sunday, uh, we saw the people of Nineveh and we saw the king of Nineveh engaged in what appeared to be a comprehensive sort of repentance after Jonah had preached. Uh, this was a repentance on the part of Nineveh that involved both calling out to God and a change in behavior. The people of Nineveh had responded to God's word in a very noteworthy, a very noteworthy sort of a way. Well, now it's God's turn to respond to them. If we could have the verse up, please, at this point. Verse 10 reads, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not 
do it. Nineveh will not be overthrown. God will exercise mercy. Now let's take time to really walk the corridors of this verse together. Again, it's our only verse this morning. So first of all, over the course of these sermons, we've brought in a couple of times Jeremiah chapter 18, and I want us to read that passage again, noticing Jeremiah 18.8 in particular, which has very obvious and close affinities uh, with Jonah 3.10. So again, in these verses of Jeremiah, God is speaking here and he says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. So having read those verses, let's now isolate verse 8 of the passage. If we can go to the next slide, thank you. Note the yellow highlighted words, which in Hebrew are all used. All of these words are used in our verse in Jonah 3.10 in the same order. If you could put the next slide up, please. So have a look at the slide there. Yellow words all repeated. So just as God promises in Jeremiah 18 that a repentant people would get divine mercy, this repentant city of Nineveh in Jonah 3 gets God's mercy. God does not overthrow repentant Nineveh. His word had been potent and powerful, hadn't it, to bring them to repentance. And now God grants them mercy. But let's do a deeper dive now into the first part of our verse. If you could switch slides again for me, please. Thank you. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. The New Jerusalem Bible, if you could put the next one up, please. The New Jerusalem Bible has it like this. God saw their efforts to renounce their evil ways. God saw their efforts to renounce their evil ways. Next slide. The Good News Bible renders it like this. God saw what they did. He saw that they had given up their wicked behavior. God saw what they did. He saw that they had given up their wicked behavior. Behavior. Notice, brothers and sisters in Christ, what God was looking for, what God was waiting for here from the Ninevites. God was looking for a turning from, a renouncing of wicked behavior. So it wasn't the fasting that they had engaged in, nor was it the wearing of the uncomfortable sackcloth that God was particularly interested in here. It, it wasn't the performance of any religious rite or the offering of a sacrifice or the carrying out of any 
pious kind of liturgy. It was changed behavior. Changed behavior. It was a turning of their hearts from wickedness. This is what God was waiting for, what he was looking for. And and this turning, remember, this turning of the Ninevites had been blessedly brought about in them by the power of God's word preached to them. What God has required here in the hearts of the Ninevites, he has orchestrated in them by the preaching of his word. One more time, what God has required in the hearts of the Ninevites, this turning from wicked behavior, he has orchestrated in them by the preaching of his powerful, potent word. Next slide, please. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented, notice the word, relented of the disaster. He, he, he relented concerning the calamity, concerning the destruction that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Isn't God merciful and patient and forbearing and compassionate and great? Next slide, please. He relented of the disaster. This translation choice here, this English word relented, is probably the best choice for the original Hebrew word in the text. There have been some rather unfortunate uh, translation choices in other English versions, like the King James Version, and the Revised Standard Version, both of which have God repenting here instead of relenting. Repenting instead of relenting. So relent is a far better choice for translation here than the word repent. And relent is also to be uh, preferred over the translation that we find in the Good News Bible and the New Revised Standard Version, which both say that God changed his mind. Relented is better as a translation here than changed his mind. If we say that God changed his mind, as the Good News Version does, or if we say that God repented, As the King James Version says, it suggests, doesn't it, to English readers that maybe God had made an insufficient decision or a bad decision, and then that he thought better of it as Nineveh repented and decided to go in a different direction. That's not the idea here. Listen. If we could go to the next slide, please. T.D. Alexander points out, I think this is very important, he points out that the Hebrew term in question here refers to a decision to act otherwise. A decision to act otherwise. And does not necessarily imply that the first action 
that was decided upon, is inferior to the second. One more time, the Hebrew word in Jonah 3.10 that the ESV translates, I think, rightly as relent, this word refers to a decision to act otherwise and does not necessarily imply that the first action that was decided upon is inferior to the second. Let's go forward one slide, please. So here's what's going on, I think, in this story. God had decided firmly and perfectly and sovereignly that an unrepentant, unrepentant Nineveh, a stubbornly wicked Nineveh, an unchanged, set-in-their-ways Nineveh, he had decided that that Nineveh would be overthrown. That Nineveh, that unrepentant Nineveh, would be destroyed. God determined that particular eventuality, and God did that perfectly with all righteousness in his divine counsel. But God further determined in that very same divine counsel that a repentant Nineveh, a Nineveh who would humble themselves in sackcloth while turning from their wickedness, changing their behavior, that Nineveh would receive his mercy. For a repentant Nineveh, God decided that he would relent, that he would not proceed with their destruction. And this too was a perfect divine decision. And here's the thing, friends, mystery of mysteries. God, with his all-knowing, all-seeing vision of the future, he knew exactly which one of those two outcomes would happen. God knew that Nineveh would repent and that they would turn. God knew in advance that Nineveh would be the recipients of his mercy as they repented. So then the idea of relenting is that as Nineveh repents, God says no to his perfect, righteous decision number one, which was to destroy a stubborn, unrepented Nineveh. He says no to that, and he says yes to his perfect, righteous decision number two, which was to relent, to extend mercy to Nineveh. So we have to understand that there has been no existential change in the inner life of God here as he relents. He is simply switching outcomes for Nineveh that he had already decided upon. Next slide, please. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about Nineveh's very noteworthy response to the Word of God that Jonah had brought. Uh, this response is described as being very thoroughgoing, 
earnest prayers, fasting, sackcloth, a turning from their wicked ways. But what we might consider a conspicuous absence in the description of Nineveh's repentance is any clear statement in the text that they forsook the Assyrian gods that they had been worshiping, abandoning those gods, turning wholeheartedly to the exclusive worship now of Yahweh, God of Israel. Like, for example, remember Naaman's confession of faith in Israel's God after Naaman had been cured from his leprosy? Naaman said in 2 Kings 5.17, he said this, From now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. He turned from the gods, the idols that he had been worshiping, exclusively to Yahweh. Or when the Moabitess Ruth confessed to Naomi, your God, Naomi, your Israelite God, Yahweh, will now be my God. We don't have any clear, explicit statement in Jonah 3 that the Ninevites abandoned the gods that they had been worshiping and wholeheartedly embraced faith in Yahweh. And in fact, what we know from the biblical history is that only a few decades, listen, a few decades after the events of Jonah 3, the Ninevites, the the Assyrian people, launched a military invasion of Israel. These Ninevites would invade, listen, they would invade the land of the God to whom they repent here in Jonah 3 and they would take Israel captive only decades after this. So then questions arise, don't they, as to just how comprehensive and how total and how lasting this repentance of Jonah 3 really was. It raises questions, but then here's the thing, friends. The question then becomes, what does this story show us concerning the nature of our God? Think about this with me. If if indeed we can take the lack, the lack of any notice in the text, if we can take that, this, this idea that Nineveh they didn't put away their gods, if we can take that as a conspicuous lack and a lack that God was fully aware of, and if indeed we take into account Assyria's invasion of Israel just decades after the events of Jonah 3, again, an invasion that God knew would happen all along, And yet we see God relenting here toward Nineveh in this moment of Jonah 3, exercising mercy on these people. What does this say about God? Might it suggest to us, I want you to listen carefully, that God delights in even small and incomplete steps 
toward him. God took pleasure in Nineveh's turning from their evil behavior in this moment, even if that turning did not necessarily include a full renunciation of their gods, even if they would later invade and harm God's people in Israel, God took pleasure in their small and incomplete steps toward him in this moment, and he relented of his plan to destroy them. I want you to listen to what John Walton says about this. Walton says, quote, The encouragement of the book of Jonah is that God is inclined to respond to even the smallest steps in the right direction. He says, the jump from prodigal to sainthood need not be made in a single leap. I really like that. Listen to that again. The jump from prodigal to sainthood need not be made in a single leap. And then Walton continues by saying this, we need only to climb the fence, to climb the fence out of the pigsty and take a step toward home. A compassionate God waits with open arms and is ready to meet us on our journey. We could have the next slide, please. When God saw what they did, when God saw what these terrorist people, these barbaric, violent, lost people, what, when, when he saw what they did, how, how they took this step toward him, turning from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. My friends, I hope that what shines out of Jonah 3.10 is the compassion of God and the mercy of God, which so far outshines my own and your own. I hope what you hear, what what grabs your heart from this verse is again what Romans 2.4 describes as the riches, the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. And I really hope that each of us hears this really personally. Are you hearing it really personally today, not looking around at anybody else. He is patient and merciful and forbearing and kind toward you. You. You see, for many of us, it's easier to think, and I'm speaking from my own personal experience, it's, it's easier to think that God's amazing patience, his forbearance, His kindness, His mercy is for everybody around us, but not for us, not for me. 
Some of us don't think that God's great, rich, forbearance, kindness, patience could possibly apply to us. We think to ourselves, you don't understand, I'm just far too wicked, I'm way too far gone, I'm way too much of a rascal, I know myself, and there's no way, there's no way that God has a compassionate heart towards me. I'm disqualified from his mercy. My friends, that kind of thinking is nonsense. It's nonsense. God's compassion and mercy is on a whole different level. It is on a whole different plane than you have imagined. Nobody, nobody is outside the reach and the riches of God's mercy, including you. And oh, that we would renew our minds in the word of God and have our hearts broken wide open to know the reality of God's patience and his mercy and his forbearance for us personally. Next slide, please, last slide. And of course, the contours of God's mercy The shape of God's mercy shows up especially at the cross of Jesus Christ. What happened was this, that God personally came into our Nineveh preaching the wages of sin is death. And God knew that each and every one of us is affected drastically by a condition, a dire condition called sin, and that each and every one of us is prone to commit sins, plural. And again, the wages of sin is death. Our sentence, you see, was eternal death for our sin against God, for our mutiny and rebellion, thumbing our nose at him. But in the kindness of God, God being rich in mercy, he sent his son Jesus to do what? to take upon himself, listen, to take upon himself that penalty of death that was due for our sin. Jesus died on behalf of sinners. He died in the place of sinners. He died as the substitute for sinners. On the cross, the sinless Jesus Christ paid the wages that were due for our sin. Imagine it. God himself took upon himself the penalty that God had declared for our sin, upon our sin. 
Talk about, friends, talk about astonishing mercy, amazing grace, breathtaking compassion and forbearance and love. And any Ninevite, any Ninevite, any sinful, brutal, prodigal, checkered record person in their emptiness who draws near to God, turning from his or her sin, God drawing them to draw near to him, anyone who embraces Jesus Christ in faith and the work of Jesus Christ is given the free gift of eternal life in Jesus. Behold the mercy of your God. Let his mercy stagger you as it comes to mind, as the Spirit brings it into your mind and heart again later this week. May it stagger you and may it excite you enough to tell others about it. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we look at texts like these, they make us uncomfortable in a redemptive way. Because they show us your heart and our hearts and the difference between the two. But it's redemptive, Lord, because you, by your spirit and by your power, have set out to transform us to be in the image of Jesus Christ, our Lord, to look like him, to have the same love that he has, to have the same values and priorities that he has, to have the compassion and the mercy that he has shown to us, to have it in our own lives. Lord, we thank you for your work upon us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen.